Welcome to the podcast Studio Stain, Inspiring Leadership. I learned in my life the importance of being inspired by others and to be surrounded by people who bring you new insights and perspectives. That is the way to grow as a leader and human being in challenging and changing times. In these podcast series, I bring you the latest innovations on personal development and leadership told from business managers, CEOs, spiritual leaders, and people who live their true story. And I am really honored, Mar- uh, Mark, to have you here and very excited okay. to hear your story. And you're in the States now, so I will give you, uh, I will give the listener a small introduction to please that I think you are or that I found on the internet that you are. And then, <laughs> and then you can just add on uh, as you wishes. So uh, and we also have um, Kista on board, so just uh, to say hello to Kista. So Mark Govney is a visionary thinker, spiritual teacher, a social activist, and a passionate philosopher. He is the author of 10 books, including the award-winning Your Unique Self, The Radical Path to Personal Enlightenment. He holds a doctorate in philosophy from the Oxford University, is a rabbi, and had a talk show on Israeli television. And together with John McKay, CEO of Whole Foods Market and entrepreneur Kate Maloney, he brings revolutionary ideas on how businesses should and can be meaningful far beyond the individual benefit, but for serving for the better of society and the world. And Mark is known for his rare, rare combination of a brilliant mind and overflowing heart. He is also very funny. You will notice that in the, when we have the talk, we will laugh a lot. So please stay, stay tuned. He is a public intellectual and has been called trailblazing visionary in opening up new possibilities for love, eros, and relationship. And in that regard, he's also the co-founder and president of the Center of Integral Wisdom. And at the end of August, he will be in Belgium leading a retreat called the Eros Mystery School. And that is at the end of August, and we will elaborate a little bit more on that later in the podcast. But it sounds already very mysterious to me. Um, So please stay tuned. And today we are talking about love and business, love and leadership, purpose, and the importance of developing yourself as a conscious human being in order to serve others. How does that sound to you, Mark? Is that who you are? (laughs) <laughs> who knows who we are but that that is a, a one snapshot at a particular mm. time of a particular set of commitments and delights and i don't think we need to set it all perfectly straight but but there is let's let's maybe say it this way mm. we're at a moment in the world where the world is significantly challenged mm. in a way that it's never been challenged before and we've created many civilizations all civilizations at some point fall and they fall for particular reasons Mm. for the first time in human history we have a global civilization with exponential technologies both of creativity and of destruction and we haven't solved any of the civilizational challenges the civilizational design challenges that caused the earlier civilizations to fall. So now we have a global civilization 
with exponential technologies of destruction, which will inevitably fall without question, unless something essential changes in our human story. And so the context for my work in the last 10 years is what I would call the meta crisis. And there are, you know, many people who I would say the overwhelming majority of the world goes about business as usual. Mm. The assumption is it's always going to be the way it's today and it's not going to be much different. But of course, that's fundamentally wrong because the one thing that never stops changing is that it always changes dramatically. Mm. And the rate of change in the last hundred years is accelerating exponentially, right? Meaning each acceleration causes another acceleration. So if you look at where we were in 1900 and where we are in 2023, they're unimaginable. Mm. The next 20 years is going to be similarly unimaginable at an exponential rate with potential dystopia. And, mm. and dystopia meaning existential risk, risk to our existence, catastrophic risk, suffering of unimaginable proportions or the actual destruction of humanity. Or... We also have the capacity to usher in a potential beautiful world, the most beautiful mm. world that we've always known is possible. So we stand before a crossroads and pretty much all I think about, brother, is that crossroads and everything that the think tank is mm. committed to is about that crossroads. And imagine if I could just make this like super real for you. Imagine you had a dream every night and you saw a speeding train moving towards a school bus filled with children. Mm. And you knew you could stop that train from hitting the school bus. More than that, you could actually cause a series of events that would cause those school children to grow up and have fabulous and beautiful lives and children and grandchildren. Or you essentially go about your business as usual. And in the natural course of events, the train hits the bus. So what do you do? So you do everything you can to not look away, to actually engage that train, redirect that train, invite those children on the school bus into the, the deepest lives they can live. That's not what we're doing today. What we're doing today is we're either ignoring the train or we're making the train go faster, quite literally. And I'll just give you one example, just one little tiny example in terms of business and education. Look at TikTok. Right. The app TikTok has essentially destroyed a generation of children right, who are scrolling in 40 second scrolls right, in a massively addicted brain destroying manner. Right. Who are getting their entire educational download from TikTok. We've mm -hmm. interrupted the actual education transmission, which is essential to generations, the generational intergenerational transmission. Mm -hmm. And we've basically transferred it to private companies whose incentive is not the well-being of their end users, mm. the kind of bottom line of profit in which they essentially addict children right, to devices and mm. essentially destroy their ability to think, to imagine, to feel, and to function. And that's become ordinary. Yeah. It's not being done by a government. Yeah. Thank right? you for that introduction, Mark. I like the metaphor Please. that you make between the, the train that is that is running for the bus to hit. And I think a lot of people, 
and especially leaders or business leaders see themselves in the cockpit of the train, not knowing what to do. You know, they see the bus with the children over there. They're, they're heading at it of full speed, not knowing what to do. So what what is your suggestion? Because it, it's very why frightening. Why don't they, it's, it's, yeah, it's very so why frightening. Why do they know what to do? Why don't they know what to do, brother? So let's let's that's beautiful. Yeah. I love what you said. So here I am. You've actually added something really important to the image. You're saying actually some of the leaders of business are actually mm. in the cockpit of the train. They're driving the train. Yeah, exactly. They don't know they don't know how to turn the train around to get off the train. Why? Let, let's go slow. Why? Yeah. Because what dominates culture in the world today is a particular story. And a story, we live in a story. We live in a story of value. And a story of value always answers three questions. Who am I? Mm -hmm. Where do we live? And what's there to do? Those are the three questions. Who am I? Where do we live? And what's there to do? Those three questions are hidden answers, are unconscious answers, are implicit answers to those three questions. Guide the life of every CEO of every plant manager, right? Of every shareholder, of every grocery clerk. Three questions. Who am I? Where do I live? And what's there to do? And mm -hmm. I call these the three great questions of, I call it cosmoerotic humanism, the new universe story. I call these the three great questions. And all of our thinking and all of our work at the center is around these three great questions. Now, if my answer to these questions is I live in a world, the where question, which is basically meaningless, which is purely random, which is not what science says, that's dogmas of scientism. That's mm -hmm. kind of fundamentalist science is not what actually science says. But if I kind of assume I live in a world that's random, which there's no purpose, there's no intrinsic value, there's no direction, right? Everything is just a postmodern potpourri of made-up values. Everything is just a social construct, like my, my friend Yuval Harari writes in his book, Sapiens. All stories, he says, are made up. All values are fiction, figments of our imagination, social constructs. And Yuval is speaking for classical postmodernity. When Yuval came to Belgium, you know, 5,000 people came right, of kind of the creme of Belgian society. And they applauded to Yuval saying, right, actually all ethos is basically a figment of our imagination. If you listen carefully, that's what he was saying. That's a problem, right? Because- Why is that? Because ethos is not a figment of our imagination. Mm. Ethos is actually real, right? It, act it makes a difference whether you decide to be Mother Teresa or Hitler, right? Yeah. Makes a difference. Makes a difference whether you're a CEO of a company and basically your story is, I'm living in a world which is ultimately meaningless. I'm in rivalrous conflict, right? I'm in a conflict, rivalrous conflict, governed by win-lose metrics. And my job is to win in my success story. So basically what's happened is, is every individual executive says, I'm in my success story. Yes. I only see what's right in front of me. I don't consider the whole. I consider my win-lose metrics, right, with the other people I'm competing against. And so that happens within the company. The company's 
compete against each other. The divisions in the company compete against each other. The employees in each division compete against each other. The nations compete against each other. The states compete against each other. The separate parts of myself compete against each other. The family members compete against each other. So you basically have win-lose all the way up and all the way down. Mm. That defines business today. That's a tragedy. And so what what we need to do is we need to re-envision business. And John wrote a book, John Mackey, who you mentioned, called Conscious Capitalism, yeah. which is one part. It's, it's one piece of the story of re-envisioning business as having a different answer to these questions. Who am I? I'm not just a material, meaningless, separate self competing to win a little bit more of the pie. I'm actually a human being who is filled with value, who's aligned with the values of cosmos. So right? what, what, what do you believe that, that could trigger these, these uh, leaders that are in the cockpit of the train to get out of that cockpit and to ask themselves these questions? What is the trigger? Because I can imagine a lot, a, lot, a lot of people, a lot of leaders, they, they need to obey certain rules or make money of their stakeholders of whoever they are, have some obligations towards. How can we get them out of the cockpit? Well, so let, let's, yeah. the way we get the leaders out of the cockpit is that they begin to tell a more accurate story. So okay. let's go slow. Yeah. So if they're only responsible to the win-lose of their shareholders, mm -hmm right? Then they're incredibly destructive, right? So yeah. for example, a bunch of American companies armed Nazi Germany in the 1930s yeah. because that was the best thing for their shareholders, right? And oh, today, yeah. right? And that, that happens all the time. But a bunch of American democratic, right? Belgium, right? Raped to the Congo and massacred men, women, and children, right? Mm -hmm. Because Belgian and King Leopold, right? Viewed themselves in a win-lose metrics and Rubber in the Congo was mm. the goal, and Belgium became a nation of murderers, right? Which Belgium hasn't actually acknowledged yet in a serious way, right? Like, wow, what did we do? So we need a better story, right? And we need a story in which, right, a business leader says, my business has a mission. Mm. It has a service. It has a vision, right? It, it it's, wants to make a contribution of real value society. It wants to serve its clients. It wants to cause more and more good and more and more true and more and more beautiful. And that's absolutely possible. So for example, when John started Whole Foods Market in America, which there were many, many huge, you know, chains of grocery stores, John started Whole Foods with a vision. And the vision was a certain way of eating and a certain relationship to food and a certain relationship to health. Right. And you would walk into Whole Foods, which wound up with 360 stores and sold at $14 billion, right? And became one of the most successful rev revolutions in food in America that had a vision. Now, a dear friend of mine, Raj Sisodia, wrote a book called Terms of Endearment. And in Terms of Endearment, and so he changed the title from Terms to Firms, Business Firms, F I R M S, Firms of Endearment. It's the play of a movie title. He analyzed, you know, 15 firms that operated according to visionary principles of value to see could they in the marketplace compete with cutthroat firms that were just about bottom line funding. Yeah. And he wanted to see, could they, could they give me a sec, could they even compete? Yeah. And it turned out not only could they compete, 
they actually 12 to one outperformed in all the standard business metrics, right? The other companies, that's a big deal. So in other words, if I actually wanna get out of that seat in the train, I need to re-envision who am I? I'm a business leader, meaning I'm a noble knight in service of creation of something good and true and beautiful in the world. And I'm held in the field of value and I'm an expression of that field of value and I'm in service and I'm not in a win-lose metrics and I'm not obligated to my shareholders only, I'm obligated to my stakeholders, as you said. And the stakeholder model written, you know, written by our colleague, Ed Freeman, says that my stakeholders are not just my customers, they're my employees, my suppliers, right? My lenders, the children of my employees, the community in whom I work, the future of the community in which I live. So in other words, it's not a shareholder model, it's a stakeholder model where I take all of the stakeholders into account and then I build a business which is an expression of outrageous love. It's an expression of evolutionary love. And if we don't do business that way, the businesses that are doing business in the old model will crash in the end. Yeah. Then they're going to collapse. I, I love that idea, uh, Mark, when you describe, okay, you should come up with a vision or leaders should come up with a vision that is uh, in a much broader context than, than it is today. And I think you speak, you, you call it also the mental, the mental concept, but maybe you can elaborate a little bit more on how can leaders find that mission for themselves, that vision for themselves? It's not out of something that you just make up from a kind of uh, intelligence IQ, what we first, call first off, they have, First off, they have, they have to work with you, right? That's okay. the way that's you, right? that's <laughs> Oh, thank sure. you for the publicity. Yeah. <laughs> we got to cover that. That's, that we have, that's already solved. Yeah. Mm. But for a, for, and, and that's, of course, true. That's part of what you do. That's part of that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right, which is beautiful. But, but in order to do that effectively, what actually has to change is the, the story of value in which I live. So let me give an yeah. example. Yeah. We're in the, the medieval pre-modern world before the Renaissance. Everyone's living inside of a specific story of value. Mm. And in that value, the king is, or queen are the only per people with real rights. There's not universal human rights. My religion is the best religion and needs to dominate your religion. Capital belongs only to the king and can't be reinvested in enterprise, right? There's a whole, there's a story in which we live. What modernity did was told a new story. Mm. A story about capital. Yeah. Told a new story about the divine. Told a new story about what it means to be a man and a woman. Told a new story of sexuality. Told a new story of desire. Told a new story of innovation and creativity. So what happened is, from the Renaissance on, we began to live inside of a new story. And that changed the way we did business. Now, to the extent that we were living inside of a, a great new story, we got far more creative. And we created all of the great dignities of the modern world. Mm. But to the extent that we got the story wrong, we also created the disasters of modernity. So the way to change society and to change the way business leaders enact business is not to go wag, wag your finger, and it's not even to regulate. It's not even regulation exactly. It's to change the story from within which the business leader is creating their life and their business. Got to change that story. Now you might say, how do you do that? Yeah, That's exactly what modernity was. Modernity was a change of story. 
So we're at a new point now where we need to change the story within which business leaders create businesses. And let me give you an exact example, okay? I'm gonna get really precise. So in the high-tech world, which is creating social media, which is the first wave of AI, Social media is essentially the first wave of artificial intelligence. That's what it is. It's machine-driven algorithmic intelligence, right? Which drives the entire social media system. So the story that social media is living in is that there's no intrinsic value to human personhood. Humans are bots on the system. And we extract from those bots value. So we literally do what's called in the web reality mining. So when you're on the web and you're scrolling, you're looking at the screen, but the screen's actually looking at you. And it's actually following exactly everything you do on the web. When I say everything you do on the web, I don't mean what pornography you watch, that's not interesting. Mm. It means how long your mouse hovers before you click. What's the pattern and order of your typing, right? What is the different sequences to which you respond and machine intelligence gathers all the information about you and then puts it through algorithmic patterns of analysis to develop a personality profile, which tells the machine intelligence how to get you to do things. This is all without you being aware that it's happening, right? That's a big deal, right? Yeah, and so machine intelligence has the ability to actually affect your action directly and to nudge and move you into taking actions and to thinking in particular ways, in particular political ways, particular social ways, without you even knowing that it happened. And they're, they've so convinced you that actually, if you don't have your phone, you feel like you're naked. Like, where's my phone? Who, who convinced you of that? How did that happen that you don't feel like a human being without your phone. phone? Who yeah. did that? So that was done intentionally. It's not an accident. Now, that wasn't true 15 years ago, but there was an intention by the TechPlex to persuade you that you're fucked up, pardon the expression, if you don't have your phone with you, you can't breathe. And that's actually true. They've succeeded. Now, what's the story that that's happening within? That the human being doesn't have intrinsic value and that we play to the lowest common denominator of the human being, not to the highest common denominator, right? And that the human being can and should be manipulated in order to extract value from the human being and their attention should be hijacked and all of that. That's based on a story that they're holding about who the human being is and the, what the world's like. So you gotta change that story, my friend. Yeah. The story is not true. So what is the human being for you, uh, Mark? What is it's it? Not, it's not what the human being is for me, right? Uh, so, you know, and again, oh, what, you know, what's your, your story on, on... No, no, I get uh, the question. It's a yeah. great question, brother. I, I want to just get it more. You know, you're fantastic. You're awesome, right? And, and I'm <laughs> Thank to you. work with you as a business leader. So I'm going to push back, not on you, friend, but just on the way we think about things. Yeah. People think is, oh, that's Mark's story. I don't care what Mark's story is. The question is, what's the best story that all of the data and information that we can gather from the ancient world, the modern world, and the postmodern world, if we integrate all that information? And we bring it together in a new story that brings all the information to bear. What's the most accurate story we can tell about who the human being is? That's interesting. Yeah, right? it is. Yeah. What's Mark's story? Who cares? 
right? But what's the most accurate story we have of what a human being is based on integrating all the schools of psychology and everything we know about molecular biology and everything we know about anthropology and everything we know about economics and everything we know about the great traditions. We integrate all that. What comes out? That's a great question. So I can answer that question. That's that's I, much. I, I, I was just going to ask you. I suppose you have a suggestion. <laughs> that's awesome, right? Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. So what so what is that? What is the in, in, well? I suppose we're coming to the subject of the integral in wisdom now. Um, if you integrate well, that all these so, this knowledge and wisdom, what what did stay, you learn stay, from it? Yeah, totally. Let's just stay with yeah. your question. So who is the human being, based on bringing together all yeah. of those streams of wisdom? In a new simple story, okay. So let's see if we can do this. Let's say in um, let's say what four forty nine my time in America. Let's see if we can do this in two minutes. Two minutes, fair? Okay, yeah, fair. Let's do it. Yeah. We can need a drum roll. Drum roll. Okay, so two minutes. Okay, let's, yeah. Let's summarize. Let's try and summarize in two minutes, like all of the wisdom, past, present, of the world and all its different dimensions. We can summarize it clearly. So who are you? That's the question. Who are you? So you are an irreducibly unique expression. You're an irreducibly unique expression of the love intelligence and love beauty and love desire of all that is that lives in you, as you, and through you. That never was, is, or will be ever again other than through you. And as such, my friend, you have a unique perspective and a unique gift and a unique quality of intimacy that never was, is, or will be ever again in the world. And as such, you have a unique gift to give to the world that can address unique needs of the world in your unique circle of intimacy and influence that no one that ever was, is, or will be ever before or again can do in the way that you can. And that's your instrument in the unique self-symphony. And to play that unique gift, which is your instrument, your unique self-symphony, your instrument in the unique self-symphony of spirit is the great joy and great obligation of your life. That's it. That's a summation of literally in that we've got all the wisdoms of the world integrated. Who are you? You're an irreducibly gorgeous unique self. But unique self doesn't mean just your Myers-Briggs test. It doesn't mean, oh, you're special. It means... No, 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 we're all part of the field of consciousness and desire. And you're a unique expression, a unique configuration of the field of consciousness and desire that is needed and desired and loved and adored by all that is. Mm. Well, Not bad. Not a bad no, way to wait. I would definitely like to go there. But if I if I if I say this to my friends and, and even to my mother, she would say, but this is complete freedom. This will create chaos all over the world to but have, have you... an, an, a, this abundancy of, um, or this everybody can do whatever they want. Is but that's it... not what we said. We didn't that's, even say no. Me. That's not what. So what? what yeah. so then let, let's talk to your mom. And you know, yeah. you and your mom is a bigger story. We could lay down on the couch and talk about that. That's a, <laughs> we're not going Definitely. there right now. That's a big question, right? Right. You know, there's an old joke. You know, Mister and Mrs. Goldstein announced the birth of their son, Dr. Goldstein, right? So in other words, the, the mothers and parents, that's a whole complicated story. Mm -hmm. But so we'll, we'll leave your mother out of it for one second with all due yeah. respect, yeah. right? But, but, but really, this is the exact opposite of you can do whatever you want. Yeah. In other words, actually, 
I'm more responsible than I ever was because what holds me responsible is not something that somebody out there said and imposed on me. Mm -hmm. Responsible is the unique gift, my unique character, my unique capacity that no one has other than me. So it's not my job to live in Belgium and to run a podcast and to go to Iceland to give a seminar, right? And to, you know, work with business leaders in Belgium, not my job. That's not, not my unique story. It's not my life. It's yours. So I get to be excited about your life. And, and I have a different unique set of gifts mm -hmm. but to know myself. That's why the great Greek Delphic Oracle said, know thyself. And know thyself means know your unique gifts, know your unique devotion, know your unique heart, and let your unique heart be your guide, but not just your guide, your unique heart creates, and, and this is for mom. Mom, ready? This is for mom. Unique heart creates your unique obligation, right? So I'm uniquely obligated, but not because somebody out there said but because my own unique gift and my own unique life creates mm -hmm. a unique capacity that no one has but me to serve. That's my unique obligation. That's a big deal, right? That, that so, can be very frightening for a lot of people. That can be very- Even for say, me, I wouldn't say, even for yeah, me. I would say like this, I would say like this. To basically live in a world in which you're told this is what you must do. Mm -hmm. In the end, you throw it off, right? In the end, you have to find your own unique heart and do the work to know what your unique heart is and respond to the call of your unique heart. But that's not, that's not do anything you want. It's quite the opposite. Mm -hmm. Now, more responsible than you ever were before. And everyone kind of knows that they have a unique gift. And everyone kind of knows that there's something that they need to do, which is more than just paying the mortgage. Right? Why am I here? What's my unique gift? Right? What's my unique responsibility? What's, and that's where my unique joy comes from. And the reason we live in a world in which we have more mental breakdown, more depression, more opioids, right? You know, more just tragic malaise, right? The sense of like, what am I doing here? What's this about? This kind of self-loathing, right? Mm. This kind of, right? Is because people have lost the sense that they're needed in the world, that what they do matters, that what they do is needed, mm. right? And so we need to return yeah. to not a lower level of responsibility in business and in life, but a much higher sense of responsibility. But it comes from, not because... The church told you or the government told you, although the church and government, of course, have their place, but because your own deepest knowing of yourself said, I want to serve. Mm. I want to give. Yeah. You know what comes up, Mark, now is like brother. this this sounds for me like the ultimate, the ultimate idea or form of self-love. Not in an egoistic right. way, but in, in a way that it really honors. Who you yeah, are and what you have to do. This gorgeous. Pure now, self-love and yeah, gorgeous. Um, now we're talking. Right now, now you got yeah. it. Now you can feel it, right? Now you can mm, feel it, right? Yeah. This is actually so love is not just an emotion. Love's oh. a perception. Yeah. Love you means I see you. 
but it's not just a perception of like, you've got great eyes, although you do have great eyes, right? But it's not just great eyes, right? Love is a perception of your unique gift, your unique self. Love is a unique self-perception. Right? To love means I see your unique self. You know, our friend, uh, Mr. Cameron got it right when he made that movie Avatar. And they don't say, I love you. They say, I see you. Right? I Isn't see it. In, in the way I can see myself, I can finally now, see myself. Love, so love is a unique self-perception. Love means I see your unique self. Self-love mm -hmm. is a self-unique self-perception. I perceive my own unique self, right? That's beautiful. In the, brother, in the whole I say I perceive my unique self, which is my unique instrument in the unique self symphony. Yeah. This is very important. Uniqueness is not separateness. I want to get no. this as big yeah. deep. It's not uniqueness doesn't separate me. It doesn't isolate me. Uniqueness is that which connects me to the whole. Mm. So reality is a unique self symphony, and every human being has a unique instrument to play in the unique self symphony. And it's only by playing my unique instrument that I feel like I'm part of the symphony. If I'm just doing my own thing, but I'm not listening to the music, and I'm just in a win-lose metrics, and I'm trying to build my company so I can get, do a better exit, I actually feel terrible. I have an ulcer. I take Prozac. My children right break down, and they're, they're on TikTok every day. Their brains fry. Right? Some of them commit suicide. Others go to opioids. The next generation never launches. That's actually what happens. Let's get real. It doesn't work. It literally doesn't work. The win-lose metric success story does not work. It destroys the individual and destroys the planet. And it's the root cause of everything that's going to actually cause the collapse of a global civilization. It's a big deal. So what we need to do is we need to tell a new story of value. And, and that's I, I, I love the, the, the concept of separateness that you bring up, Mark, because yeah. what I feel often is that Uh, people who really want to discover uh, their their self, unique, their unique self, it is they describe it often as a lonely path, and they feel disconnected from who they actually are, or they who they think they are, or who they think they should be. And I would, the, the, the thin line. What what is, how can you elaborate yeah, a bit more a good, on, on, on the Brother, separateness that's... and the way to? That's great. So let's distinguish this oneness. Between, let's distinguish between your separate self and your unique self. This is very important. Mm -hmm. Your separate self is your ordinary separate self that's in rivalrous conflict with other people. And the rivalrous conflict is governed by a win-lose metrics. And as separate self, you're trying to figure out how do you succeed? That's a lonely path because yeah. you're cut off from everyone. You're mm -hmm. isolated from everyone. If you could then go the next step, you realize, no, no, I'm not actually a separate self. As Albert Einstein wrote, separation is an optical delusion. I'm not a separate self. I'm not separate from the whole field of life. I'm not separate from all the human beings that surround me. I'm not separate from the plankton on the bottom of the ocean. I'm not separate from the biosphere. I'm not separated from my web of relationship and intimacy. I'm not separated from the field of consciousness. All of that lives inside of me, like I live inside of it. That's called true self. That's mm. the realization that we all participate in the same field of desire and consciousness. That's true self. I've gone now from separate self to some sense of true self. But then I don't stop there. My friend Eckhart Tolle stops there. Be here now, mm. right? Says my friend Ramdas or 
or Eckhart says, the power of the now, it's all now. No, now is just the experience of true self right now, right here. But then I'm called by the future. That's my unique self. And my unique self is my unique expression of the field of consciousness and desire. And uniqueness doesn't cause isolation. Uniqueness doesn't cause alienation. Uniqueness causes communion. Think about mm. it, my friend. Your closest friends, your closest friends that you have, they're your close friends because they see your uniqueness. Right? It's wow. Right? Wow. All right, this one hits. I like this one. Yeah. yeah, right? It's like, oh, uniqueness is the, in English, we would say, you know, the word currency, like the currency of electricity. We'd mm -hmm. say uniqueness is the currency of connection. Mm -hmm. Separation is the currency of isolation, alienation. Separate self, trying to find my talent and separate self, isolating, lonely. My unique self, that's how I get over loneliness. To get over loneliness is to be able to share my unique self my soul print, if you will, with another person. Ja. Wow. How you doing, brother? Mark, wise yeah. words. What a delight <laughs> to be together, my friend. Mm. What a delight to be in your space. Uh, when, I was, when I was preparing for the interview, um, you know, you talk about outrageous love as, a, uh, as the opposite of the outrageous pain or the world that we live in now. Um, how would you describe this outrageous love in connection to the unique self that we just that we just shared? Hey, and, great, that's a um, great question. Because the out out, how do you define that, and and great. how important is it to discover it and to use it? How can one use it in business and great. in their leadership, in your great, leadership? My yeah. That's great. Great. I, I love the, I mean, I love the inquiry, the question. Let, let's say it like this. You know, the sentence that we often say that we can all feel in our body is we live in a world of outrageous pain. The only response to outrageous pain is outrageous love. Mm -hmm. Right. And what do we mean? Outrageous pain is clear, right? Wherever we look in the world, we see beauty. We live in a world of outrageous beauty. We also see pain. We see brokenness, right? We see hurt. We see violence, right? We see depression. We see breakdown. So those are both true. The only response to outrageous pain is outrageous love. So what does that mean? So outrageous love is different than ordinary love. Ordinary love is the experience of a separate self-human being in rivalrous conflict, in this win-lose metrics, trying to use love to get some security, to get some status, to get some recognition. So that's using the experience of love to serve my very real and true need for status, recognition, security, comfort. That's okay, it's not a bad thing. It's something that we all do in different points in our lives. And it's, it's totally okay, but it's not, it doesn't take us home. It gives us the experience of being alive. Outrageous love is not a mere human strategy. Outrageous love is the heart of existence itself. Outrageous love is, as Dante wrote, the love that moves the sun and other stars. Outrageous love is what moves 
subatomic particles to become an atom and atoms to become a molecule and molecules to become a macromolecule and macromolecules to deepen their intimacy and come alive as a cell and a cell to become a multi-cell. Prokaryotes become eukaryotes and on up the evolutionary chain. And it's what drives the entire process is eros, this love that moves reality towards ever deeper contact and ever larger wholeness. Now, when I realize that eros that drives all of reality lives uniquely in me, that's outrageous love. Outrageous love is the realization that the eros that moves all of reality lives uniquely in me, in thee, in Krishna. That's outrageous love. Now, when you access that quality of outrageous love, it's not limited to your body, heart, mind. It's actually the entire field awake and alive in you. You're part of an intimate universe, right? A cosmo-erotic universe that literally lives awake inside of you. And it's actually eros all the way up and all the way down the evolutionary chain. You actually realize reality is eros. The eros that moves in me is an expression of the field of reality. That's what it means to be outrageous love. So... Just wow. to, to yeah, well, to to be clear, Mark, uh, you, you speak about outrageous love and eros. Is eros the energy that 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 comes or that drives the outrageous love, or is it vice versa? Eros and outrageous love. Same word. Same word. Same word. Eros and outrageous love mean the same thing. Eros and outrageous love. Outrageous love means the love that's the heart of existence itself. So eros and outrageous love are the same word. They mean the same thing. They're just different ways, different languages to describe the same phenomena. But when I realize that outrageous love lives in me uniquely, I become alive, right? I become delighted. My life is worthwhile by itself. And when people fall in love, if there's this an enormously elated, ecstatic feeling, that's the quality of outrageous love. That's what outrageous love feels like. And it's outrageous love is not to get somewhere. It's the value itself. Yeah. You're not like, oh, this is great because now I'm going to get there. No, no, no. This is great by itself. When, I'm, when, I'm, when I feel outrageous love moving through me, it's not in order to get somewhere. I've already arrived. Wow. Is that what you would call or what people what some call the bliss moment or bliss? Is that a state of bliss being in a state of bliss of, of no, holiness? No, 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 it's not is that, that something different. No, it's not that because outrageous love is sometimes agonizing, mm -hmm. sometimes painful, and it's mm -hmm. filled with holy and broken hallelujahs. Mm -hmm. Right. And it's about real life lived. And it's about all the broken vessels and all the broken hearts, right? And all of the poignancy and all of the promise and all of the pain and nothing's left out of outrageous love. And a bliss moment is a kind of, kind of a new age adoption of this idea of bliss as the kind of ultimate goal. Now, there are moments of ecstatic delight, but even ecstatic delight isn't only bliss. Even, even ecstasy is not bliss. Ecstasy also has ecstatic urgency. So, for example, in sexuality, as I come close to someone, 
right? I'm ecstatic, but I'm also urgent. There's an urgency moving in me. It's not quite bliss, mm. right? That's bliss is just one taste among many. One taste, and when we idealize bliss, right, we do ourselves a great disservice. Bliss is, is one taste. It's a beautiful taste, but it's far from the fullness of life. An outrageous yeah. love is, yeah. is the holy and broken hallelujah. Mm. Right, like that. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So now we begin what's happened. Something's changed because we're, we're in these few minutes, we're living in a new story together. You can actually feel it. The field is different. It's not that we have new information, although we do have some new information, but we're changed because we're living and creating from a different place. In the beginning, we're, we're in a podcast with this beautiful man and little win-lose metrics. Can we get some information across and we get some ideas and then slowly the field changes, the lens changes, the story of value changes, and we begin to inhabit together a new place, a new possibility. We begin to speak from that place and something softens. And it's not that we get weak, we get stronger and we get more clear. We get more at home in the universe, more delighted, not more blissful. It's all still agony and ecstasy but so much more real and so much more, not happiness, but joy. You know, like that. That would add peace. Yeah. In a way. Yeah. Peace. Peace in the sense of not that there's no tension, but peace oh. in the sense of the original Hebrew word shalom, mm -hmm. which means actually wholeness. Mm -hmm. There's a wholeness, right? Which is a better, right? There's a wholeness. And the wholeness has both peace and tension, both disruption and calm, both tenderness and fierceness. That's all part of the wholeness. Shalom. That's the word shalom. Beautiful word. Yeah. Now, if you pronounce it now, it sounds very differently. Right? Doesn't it, right, my friend? <laughs> Right. Yeah, so beautiful. Hmm. Is it once, once, um, I wouldn't say obligation or a task or, or responsibility to, to get there one in a moment in life? It's a beautiful question. We are responsible to be who we are. That's the greatest responsibility in the world. To be who we are. To realize our true nature. But that's the only thing we're responsible for. To make us responsible for anything else would be cruel. Right? We're responsible to be who we are. And who we are... is intensely good. We're intensely good beings wanting to serve and wanting to create joy and meaning and depth. 
Now, but this is very important. We're not naturally good though. We're inherently good. Inherently means intrinsically good. But we're not naturally good. We have to train our goodness. We have to cultivate our goodness. Just like the musical ability lives in the musician, but the musician cultivates, trains, until we can play the music of reality. So goodness is music. We have to learn the notes. We have to learn to play. We have to move from noise to music. But the music lives within us. And if it didn't live within us, literally, we could never learn music. The same way we could never do mathematics and be great physicists if the mathematics didn't live within us. So goodness is our nature. Goodness is who we are. But just like we train mathematics and just like we train music, we train for goodness. That's beautiful. Yeah. And it sounds in a way so easy, yet so difficult at the same time. Yeah, it's so simple. Mm. It's not first simplicity. No, 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 no. It's second simplicity, I call it. It's the simplicity after complexity. It's after you've done all of the complexity. Ah, oh, okay, that's clear, right? Like that. Well, mm. I suppose, Mark, that um, to train our goodness and to practice it. Um, we can go to the Eros Mystery School. <laughs> we can indeed. We can indeed. Right? There is actually in Belgium. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm delighted to invite people. And it's a, a gift we try and give in Europe. And the, the location of the think tank, the think tank is based out of Belgium and the United States. So it's a, it's a shared think tank. And we have many of our key and wonderful friends who participate in leading what's called the Office for the Future. And you can look it up online, the Office mm -hmm. for the Future, which gives you a vision of the think tank. And you can also look up online Eros Mystery School, Eros Mystery School. And we do every year for the last decade, right, a five-day beautiful intensive training in answering those three questions. Who am I? Where am I? And what's there to do? And we go very, very deep in the field of practice and in the field of mind and the field of heart and the field of body. And it's a, it's a before and after experience, right? In other words, if, if you love yourself, if you take yourself at all seriously, you know, if you believe that somehow there's more value and more goodness on the table than you've been able to take from life and give into life, right? then, then be there. It's the biggest possible gift you could give yourself. It's, it's profound and beautiful and insanely gorgeous people. And just a very deep dive into what it means to be a human being today, what it means to love, what it means to be an outrageous lover, what it means to live in Eros, what it means to identify my unique self, Right. So it's, it's, a, it's a stunning group of days, and it'd be great to see you there, brother. So my personal invitation, 
come, come with crazy delight, my friend. And you know, uh, to close the podcast where we began with it, please. It sounds like the perfect way to get out of that cockpit of yeah. the train. Right? Isn't that true? Right? Right? And it just, you know, I'm just noticing, brother, how beautiful, right? We started maybe the first half hour, mm. right? With a kind of great, fierce intensity as we were trying to find our way, which is what we should do. Mm. What we should do, right? And then gradually, as we get in deeper and deeper, the depths open up and it gets more fierce, but also soft mm. and gentler. And, and the space opens, then there's so much space. There's so much space to talk and so much space to listen and so much space to love, right? Cha. So thank you for the beauty of your creating space, my friend. Well, it is, um, it is, my, it is my honor to have you here and yeah. to, um, um, to have this beautiful conversation. And I think it is even more uh, rewarding or grateful that we can share this. You know, just put it in the world. Yeah. Because otherwise it's just a nice conversation between some person in the States and a person in Belgium. And now we can share this. Hallelujah. And just yeah. let people notice this um how in half and 30 minutes things can turn. Yeah, beautiful. Beautiful, my friend. So I'm looking forward to the five days. And I hope I see a lot of my listeners as well uh, to experience this even more deeper and um, in a profounder way. Let it so, be so. Can't thank wait. You to... for, thank you for this introduction. Cha. Thank you, brother. <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you. And I also would like to say thank you to uh, to the listener, of course, who is uh, always prepared to listen to the end and uh, listening to my podcast and to all the guests that I have. So um, I hope they keep on listening because there will be even more guests coming up and maybe we'll see each other. In, and I would like to say this is the most beautiful spot, the retreat where you, that you will organize it. It's in a beautiful spot in Belgium. A very nice castle and i've been there a lot so it's uh, the best place you can have a retreat like this yay so. let's do this my friends let's Thank love you it. Yay. listener of course who is uh, always prepared to listen to the end and uh, listening to my podcast and to all the guests that i have so um i hope they keep on listening because there will be even more guests coming up and Maybe we'll see each other in, and I would like to say this is the most beautiful spot, the retreat where you, that you will organize it. It's in a beautiful spot in Belgium, a very nice castle, and I've been there a lot. So it's uh, the best place you can have a retreat like this. Yay. So, Let's do this, my friends. Let's thank love you. It. Yay. Thank you very much for listening to Studio Stain. If you want more inspiration, just go to my website studiostain.com or go to the Spotify website iTunes on Inspirational Leadership. 
You can also share this podcast with others who might benefit from listening to these inspirational talks. Thank you very much. Great people.